Hi, this is William Ramsey. Welcome to William Ramsey Investigates. On tonight's show, we have a very special guest. His name is S. Awan, and he is the proprietor of an excellent blog titled The Burning Blogger of Bedlam, The Cultural, The Political, The Weird, and Things That Go Bump in the Night. I came across the blog after doing a search on Libya, and I noticed that Mr. Awan had written a free book, The Libya Conspiracy, a definitive guide to the lies of the Libya intervention and the crime of the century. So I did read through that and uh, found it fascinating and invited Mr. Awan to be on the show. So we're very honored to have him as a guest on William Ramsey Investigates. So uh, the blog again is The Burning Blogger of Bedlam and look for the book The Libya Conspiracy. I do think it's an important book because he details many of the aspects of the uh, destruction of Libya and how external forces work together uh, using a wide variety of different tools to subvert the government of Muammar Qaddafi and uh, destroy the country. And it's still pretty much destroyed to this day. So uh, please enjoy the show. So tonight on the show, Mr. Awan is going to talk about his book and just we're going to talk about current events as well. So we're just going to kind of first get into the basics of what happened in Libya in 2011. And I really uh, thought his book was very thorough. So I'm really glad to have you on the show, Mr. Awan. I'm glad to be here. Thank you. Awesome. awesome. So if you can, tell me, tell us a little bit about yourself and uh, how you got interested in Libya. Yeah, well, basically, I'm, these days I'm just, uh, I describe myself as an independent blogger, I guess, independent researcher. Uh, I have some minor background in journalism, but, um, you know, being published in some very minor publications and stuff like that. But quite a while ago, I guess I made the decision to just give up on all of that and to just go for an independent blogging platform instead, because, you know, there'd be less restrictions and I could talk about, I could talk more honestly and more, more openly about whatever I wanted, come at it from any angle. Um, and with Libya, Basically, I, I remember watching what was happening in Libya, primarily via mainstream news, and the whole situation just seemed wrong to me from the start. The information seemed suspect, the motivation seemed suspect, um, and I, I mean, I ignored it for a long time. I didn't write anything about it until I started seeing the stories coming out of Libya maybe a year or so after Gaddafi was killed about how badly the country was doing. I mean, CNN, uh, we're calling it a failed state. Um, we had a refugee crisis was just starting at that point. Um, you had, a, you know, Al-Qaeda battalions riding around uh, cities in tanks and there were killings on the streets and assassinations and all this stuff. And I, it just occurred to me that I should go back, do some thorough research and look at what actually happened why it happened, how it started, what the real motivation was, and why the country was just left alone after that. But, you know, after the point of uh, Gaddafi being killed, uh, a new government of sorts being installed, why the Western powers just, just completely turned turned away and, and didn't stay to stabilize or secure the situation. Um, so that's really where it came from. I spent maybe about a year looking into, into the situation, researching every angle I could, going to any source I could to build up a really solid, strong picture, a really solid case, and 
then I just started putting the book together and I decided pretty quickly that I wasn't going to try and sell the book or go through Amazon or, or anything like that I would just put it up on the blog and people could download it for free and you know do what they wanted with it well that's great um, I mean, it's, a, it's a great book but uh, tell us a little bit about Libya before Godify and when Godify came into power well so Libya um, doesn't have much of a didn't have much of a history before Gaddafi uh, in terms of you know it's a very tribal society it's a very it seems to have been a very simple society they were occupied by the Italians uh, during World War Two um, you know they were treated very badly by the Italians during World War Two there, there, there was uh, up to I think up to around a million Libyans died in concentration camps um, and so the, the, the Libyan, I, I mean, I, I guess the Libyan psyche has this kind of natural defensiveness against, you know, against foreign powers. And, uh, you know, which began, I guess, with the Italians. But then it, it, it went on to the French and the Americans and the, the British after World War Two, because they, they essentially wanted Libya as a as a colony or as a client state, if you will. So they uh, installed um, this the, the king, the king, uh, King Idris was basically uh, seen as a British Western uh, vassal in Libya, who who was allowing basically Western powers to to have military bases in the country and to siphon off natural resources and all the, all the usual kind of stuff. Um, and so, in sixty nine, nineteen sixty nine, you had Gaddafi come along with a, a group of military officers to stage this coup to overthrow the king and to take over control of Libya it was a it was famously regarded as a as a bloodless coup there were no uh, there was no fighting there were no casualties it was just generally regarded to have happened with the common consent of the people generally speaking but, but yeah it's interesting when you look at that when you look at 1969 and you had a coup that was basically very orderly with no bloodshed and no violence and compare it to 2011 which was a coup as well you know I guess was a coup but was the exact opposite you know it was just complete chaos and bloodshed and dead bodies all over the place um, and you get two very different ideas of what of what a coup is you know mm-hmm. two very different types of coup um, and you know the coup in 1969 arguably led to a couple of decades of very solid growth and development and um, you know, economic development and social development and and infrastructure building and all of this. Uh, whereas the coup in 2011, where we're now six years or seven years on, and there is nothing. I mean, there is just all these rival factions and terrorists and failing governments and you know. Well, let's talk about that. What was Gaddafi's policies in trying to build the infrastructure of his country? Well, um, it, it was a very kind of. I mean, I guess you could call it socialist. He he had a very, he had, I guess he had a socialist kind of leaning. Um, that's how he saw it. He was inspired by, um, largely by um, General Nasser in Egypt. He was so the idea was uh, of Arab nationalism, uh, of building up a very strong, independent Arab states. You know, na- nationalize everything, all the industries. Um, Avoid, you know, keep out foreign ownership and foreign uh, foreign entanglements and and all all of this kind of stuff, and just build up a very strong independent state. But they, I mean, they had some socialist principles in there, I guess. And but really, the idea was Arab nationalism. He was big into this Arab nationalism, um, 
and he was actually he actually spearheaded an initiative i think in the early 70s where the idea was to combine libya syria egypt uh, possibly or maybe it was just libya syria egypt into a kind of unified arab state they would all they would all be independent uh, nations of course but they would have a common uh, they would have a common defense pact and a common kind of economic policy and they would be very intertwined in that way um, the the, initi- the initiative didn't really work it kind of it kind of ended up collapsing but to what extent was muammar qadhafi influenced by islam um, to, to an extent, I mean, uh, he was, uh, you know, he was a Muslim and a practicing Muslim. He was, a, a, to, to an extent, but he wasn't, Islam wasn't a central part of, of the regime or the ideology. It was there as a kind of, you know, you, you have some countries in the world today that are, you know, Christian. They're not Christian countries at the state level, but they're, they're generally considered Christian countries. It was more along those lines. It wasn't imposed. It wasn't, there was no Sharia law. There was no, um, you know, you could be happily, you know, you could be a Christian or you could be a Sufi or, or whatever else. There was no, it, it's not like Saudi Arabia or, you know, or the, or the kind of states that they're trying to create at the moment where they try, you know, where they're arming all these jihadists and um, Wahhabis to kind of create religious states. It, it was the opposite of that, really. It was a more open, tolerant kind of Islam, progressive kind of Islam, as far as I can, you know, as best as I can tell. Um, but it was there. It, it was it was important, but it wasn't it wasn't central. And he, I mean, the the level of development and wealth that was distributed to all citizens was remarkable in comparison to what was what it was like before he took power. Is that correct? Oh, absolutely. Uh, before he took power, Libyans were in in total poverty. I mean, there were there were people living in shacks and shanty towns and tents and stuff. And you know, under the king, un, under the monarchy at that time, yeah, they they, they were in complete poverty. He came along within within ten years of his administration. You know, the, the job. You know, the people had jobs. People had income. People, people who didn't have jobs still had income. You know, they were getting a reasonable amount of money from the state. There was a kind of welfare state there going on. Um, people were being subsidised. You know, uh, for 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 just getting married or for having children. Um, housing was free. Housing was considered a human right rather than a commodity. Um, there was all these kinds of policies going on, um, and I think I mean I think he modelled some of it on Cuba a little bit to the extent to an extent, and he was very close to Castro. I know that. So, okay. do you so, know? Uh, do you know about the oil wealth of Libya? Was that the main export of the country? Yeah, I mean a, a very oil-rich oil uh, country, and interestingly, kind of coming towards 2011. Um, he, you know, uh, he he was talking about favoring, basically turning away from Western nations and America and Britain, etc., and favoring uh, deals with China, Russia, and India and those kinds of countries in terms of selling the oil. You know, um, and that probably would have had something to do with the motivation from from some of the Western powers to well, to go in there. Wasn't uh, there another mo- wasn't there another motivation that he was thinking about creating his own currency or supporting a currency? Have you heard anything like that? Yeah, he was. I mean, he was interested in creating an African currency, backed by backed by gold, basically. And he was also. I mean, this was also kind of part of. He had this agenda of trying to establish a an African bank, you know, an African central bank to basically 
separate Africa from the African nations from the IMF and the World Bank and to kind of have their own system going on, um, their own financial system. And, and uh, so, I mean, I think he was he was some distance into already establishing that. They had already set up, um, I don't have the information to hand on, but they'd, they'd set up a central bank, I think, in uh, Cameroon or somewhere like that. And obviously there was a there was a headquarters in, in, in Libya. And so he was part way down that down that route and it, uh, what's astonishing is how little it, that was actually reported in in mainstream media at the time leading up to kind of 2011 because it must have been going on for some time before that i only found out about it after you know after the fact by looking at some interesting sources but there, yeah there was a complete blackout on these kinds of uh, stories and initiatives the, uh, w- one of the main reasons he, he was so heavily investing in africa at this point was I think because his Arab initiatives had had failed, and he did he kind of felt um, abandoned by the the rest of the Arab world, and he was very frustrated with the Arab leaders and and all of this because he was he'd been trying to encourage this this kind of Arab unity and um, you know this interconnectedness of of, the, of strong Arab states, and it just wasn't you know it just wasn't happening. So I think in his frustration he, he just turned away from the arab world more and, and focused more on africa because he was in that position obviously libya being in africa he was in that position to be in both worlds and he he decided to turn in this direction instead but i just i just want to say the interesting thing about this idea that he had to create these uh, unified independent arab states was that one of the key uh, ideas of it was a mutual kind of defense uh, pact, a mutual defense situation, which when you think about what's happened in, in, in the last few years with the attack on Libya, the, the, the war in Syria, uh, you, you could go back to the invasion of Iraq. That actually would have been very useful and very valid had that been in place. So that if, if, there, if, there, if there had been this plan you know, to invade Iraq, it would have been, well, we're not just invading Iraq, we're going to have to face Syria, Libya and Egypt at the same time because they have a mutual defense pact you know it's kind of equivalent i guess a kind of equivalent to nato but because it failed obviously each country was left to their own device you know to fight their own battle and were left to their own devices right that's an excellent point because it's clearly syria could have benefited from some support from other regional states i mean i think that's an excellent point yes what his oil i mean his uh, gold reserves did he have substantial gold reserves uh, this is my understanding. I, I, I don't. I actually don't know in terms of uh, n- uh, numbers and exact value and all that. I, I don't know. He, he did have a substantial gold reserve. Yes. Uh, there seems to also be uh, a complete mystery as to what has happened to that gold. No one seems to know. Um, so, well, <laughs> I mean, take a guess. I, I, can you talk a little yeah. bit about the Obama letters? Yeah. Th- this was something I was. Um, yeah, I was quite surprised to come across this. So basically, very early in 2011, I think in February or March 2011, in the very early stages of the crisis, he did. He wrote these. Le- he wrote, I think, two letters at least to President Obama, um, basically explaining to him that what was going on in Libya was an, an Al Qaeda-led armed uprising, and that they were fighting Al Qaeda. And he was basically just trying to explain this almost like a, in a man-to-man kind of way, just like, I think he almost thought that, that Obama was perhaps misreading the situation or had been misled, which which was kind of, I still think to some extent Obama had been misled by, by his State Department under Hillary Clinton and by the French um, into, a, yeah, into a misreading of the situation. Um, 
you know, to, to a large extent. And and so th- these letters, Gaddafi is saying to him, you know, please stop what you're, you know, please don't go along with this. Stop what you're doing. Uh, let's return to uh, diplomacy and let's have dialogue. Let's talk about Al Qaeda because Al Qaeda is behind this. This is what's going on. And I don't know that there were any. I mean, I assume Obama didn't reply to any of those. I, I'm. Uh, I mean, I'm actually surprised that those letters actually made it into mainstream media because that was my source. I, I think um, one of them I got from a French newspaper and the other possibly from an American newspaper. Though I can't remember. I can't remember which one. But um, it kind yeah, of, it's you know, very. It reminds me of Saddam Hussein kind of begging the Americans, like, we'll do what you want, whatever, you know, how can we stop this? And the Americans really didn't listen. So I, I kind of saw that parallel. But, uh, yeah, I wouldn't be surprised at all if Obama was misled by Hillary Clinton and uh, her State Department. But what, what was the actual beginning start of his overthrow? How did that begin? I mean, we could look at that a number of ways. We could talk about just 2011. Um or we could talk about a broader context going because I mean the reality is that, that they were wanting to overthrow him for a very long time. I mean you're going back 20, 30 years, you know, to even before Lockerbie and any of that, or, or when Reagan bombed uh, Tripoli right. back in the 80s and all of that, and some, you know Lockerbie being a false flag potentially, and there was the Berlin disco bombing, which was also pretty much revealed to have been a false flag operation too. All these things blamed on Libya to provide kind of justification for sanctions and for you know for basically just you know vilification and outright demonization. Right. Uh, when it came to 2011, see, I mean the thing when it came to by 2011, by that point, for at least six or seven years, there had been a, a very much a cooling off and almost like a recon- or what seemed to have been a reconciliation. Um, Gaddafi was uh, cooperating with the, with the U.S. Uh, in terms of uh, intelligence and, and even rendition, I, I believe, in terms of uh, fighting al-Qaeda and fighting Islamist jihadists and all of this kind of stuff. Um, and Libya was beginning to open up a bit more and some, you know, some foreign businesses were returning. So I was very surprised in 2011 that our governments took the line that they did because we were essentially, I mean, OK, I wouldn't say we were allies, but we were certainly on better terms at that point. Um, and so, you know, my original thought was that, OK, there's this uh, Arab Spring going on, there's this uprising going on. They're saying, you know, they're saying Gaddafi is attacking civilians and all this kind of stuff. So maybe they're misreading the situation and they've gone in on that basis. But then the more you look into it, you just come to the conclusion that no, they weren't misreading anything. This was all kind of, this was all kind of planned out because you get into stuff like, um, yeah, you, you, I mean, you've read the book, haven't you? Yes. Yeah. So um, you, you, so the stuff about the social media accounts. Do you remember this and and uh, how you had a. a arms of the US military basically setting up these scores of fake social media accounts on Twitter and, and what have you and and you know uh, and the software being in place to create this impression of all these accounts being from inside you know Libya or inside Syria and uh, you know seeming very legitimate right. you know on the surface but that was the, the, the Arab Spring started in early 2011 right so Tunisia was supposedly overthrown, a popular uprising. So that was the state that Libya was in prior to the overthrow in late 2011, right? Yes. Yeah. So um, so tell me how, how this whole overthrow of Qatifi progressed. Well, I mean, it's interesting because... Uh... 
I mean, uh, uh, you, the star point, I guess you, you would say, would be the, the the protests or the so-called protests that were going on against Gaddafi. The, the, it turns out there's actually very little evidence to to uh, prove that these protests were actually going on, at least not on the scale that we were told. Um, and what really seemed to have been going on is that you had these uh, these groups, uh, groups of you know gangs of kind of criminals and uh, jihadists and al-Qaeda people in there uh, launching an armed rebellion, but but which was being sold or spun in the West as kind of a peaceful pro-democratic uprising. Um, I said, I mean, I wrote in the book that there, were, there was no proof that there were, there were any actual genuine civilian protests. I've since been corrected on that by someone who was there in Libya and who spoke to me a few months ago and said that there were some genuine actual peaceful protests by people who, who were not actually trying to overthrow the regime, but were calling for, you know, calling for change in general and calling for uh, more freedoms and Things like that, but the, but the, I mean, these weren't people involved in an armed up, uprising. These were just uh, civilian protesters. You had the, the the armed people and the armed groups were a different matter entirely. But they got deliberately conflated by Western media to create this um, to create this false impression. It's exactly the same thing that went on in Syria, where you you did you, there were genuine uh, protests and and peaceful civilian you know, gatherings going on but there was you know simultaneously there were also these armed groups and these other factions in there who sort of came in under the under the guise of these protests you know to be you know almost to be disguised by the protests so that it took a very long time for people to actually figure out what was going on it, it probably took a very long time even for uh, the, the government and the, the authorities in syria to figure out what was going on and likewise in libya i think there were the, the libyan uh, military and authorities were very slow to respond because I don't think they actually understood what was happening. Gotcha. I think they were as confused as anyone. Well, there um, was that whole scene of uh, Godify traveling through Tripoli in his car that was uh, published, right? I mean, that he didn't, and that was what, April that he was going through. So yeah, he didn't yeah. sense his inevitable fate or the fate that was going to befall him, right? Yeah. I mean, yeah, I, I think he, yeah, I think he misread the situation for quite a while. And that goes back as well to, to writing the letters to Obama. I, you know, I think he, he misread the situation um, because it was a very, I mean, it was very, I mean, this is what drew me to the Libya subjects in general is that it was so insidious what was done compared to like the invasion of Iraq. The invasion of Iraq, you know, there were lies, but they were kind of very basic lies of, of you know, he, he has these weapons and this, that, and the other, and you know the, the myth that he was that Saddam was kind of involved with Al Qaeda and 9/11 and all of this. Whereas in Libya, the, it would just to, to go to the extent of creating these vast social fake social media accounts, you know, have all of that set up, and then you know, filming like you know fake. See, I mean, so one of the other things is. It's, it's since emerged from what I've been told from from a few sources is that they had somewhere set up in Qatar, okay, where they filmed stuff, and, and they basically had like a fake re a recreation of Tripoli in Qatar, so that they could film things and make it look like Tripoli in Libya, but it was really being filmed in Qatar, and they would have these fake scenes going on and and they would stage these kind of scenes that were supposed to depict kind of the Libyan government forces attacking civilian areas and all this kind of stuff. 
I mean, the extent that they went to to, uh, to create these deceptions, you know, on all these levels is just so extraordinary. It's so insidious com compared to Iraq, which I think was much simpler, you know. Um, and, and maybe they felt they needed to do that because because Iraq had already been exposed. You know, they couldn't, you know, they couldn't go down a similar route. They had to come up with a completely different um, way of operating, much more complicated and much more, uh, you know, much more insidious. I mean, the, the social media aspect was shocking to me when I discovered it because I, I, I it had been suggested to me that these social me, social media accounts were fake. Um, so I started looking into it, but I didn't look, I mean, I wasn't looking at alternative media or conspiracy theory stuff. I, I was literally just looking for, I, I was looking at tech magazines and um, computer magazines and websites and those kinds of things, stuff that isn't political or anything like that, but it's just all, all you know, all the geeky stuff. Right. And that's where I came across this stuff. It was in, it was in a tech tech magazines and computer magazines and websites they were talking about this uh, this program that the american military had created uh, and, and then i'm looking at the dates of these articles and it's february 2011 uh, you know literally at the same time as the libya thing was starting up or just slightly before that and you start putting the dots together and you end up with a with a very disturbing picture of what actually happened yeah, it was like a multifaceted approach to removing Godify from all different levels. Social media, mass media, different elements, fake rebels. Yeah. Just an incredible different, like the whole black box of uh, different tools were used in that uh, overthrow. Would you agree with that? Yes, but, but yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. But also, these all of these tools must have been set up long in advance because you couldn't just come up with all of that as a response to what happened in February 2011. You'd need a lot longer than that. So this stuff was all there, kind of ready to go. Gotcha. I mean, I'm still not sure I'm still not sure if the Arab Spring was artificially created or if it was a genuine thing, because it may have been a genuine thing, certainly in Tunisia when it, where it started, and in Egypt. But, but then when you get to the point where all of these um, parts of the conspiracy were already, already in place and ready to go, you then have to wonder, well... Did they know this was going to happen? Did they help it along? Did they? Did they? A program, right? Wasn't there a program that was scripted that, like six or seven of the Arab countries would be overthrown? Was uh, Syria, Iraq, all those, uh, Libya, Egypt? Yeah, this is going back to um, immediately after nine eleven, and there was a there was the retired general Wesley Clark, I think, who who had been in the Pentagon at that time and who was privy to Rumsfeld. Um, having this this basically this hit list of countries that 9-11 would allow them to to kind of go after and it, you know, obviously iraq was on there and and you're right yeah libya and uh, syria uh iran i think and i can't remember what the others were there was about seven countries okay that's the end of the first half of the show we are here with the burning blogger of bedlam mr s awan and talking about his book the libya conspiracy a Definitive Guide to the Lies of the Libya Intervention and the Crime of the Century, which can be found for free at the Burning Blogger of Bedlam. Okay, so we're back with S. Awan talking about his book, The Libya Conspiracy, and we've just kind of been talking about how Libya was overthrown and how it might have been part of a larger agenda, and that uh, Muammar Qaddafi really didn't see his, his fate. Right. Well, the impression I come to from from all the research, it, it really, I think, it comes back significantly to the CIA, and then it, and then from there, it also involves the French 
and the British, um, you know, possibly the Saudis. There's always been this uh, implication that the Saudis and the Qataris were involved, which I'm inclined to believe was the case. They had a very negative relationship with Muammar Gaddafi. The Saudis did anyway. Um, yeah, but the CIA, I mean, this, this plan to get rid of Gaddafi was, was there for, for a very long time. I mean, going back to the, at the very least, the early 1980s under Reagan. Um, so it was always there in the background. And I th my reading of what happened was that in 2011, as soon as these protests started up, and they were very small protests, they weren't very big, they saw their chance and they, they said, all right, let's go for it. This is our, this is our moment. Even though at that point in time, um, at the official level, America had a very good relationship with Gaddafi. At that point, they nevertheless decided this is this is the time. Let's go. Um, so when it comes to stuff like this, I'm inclined to I'm inclined to focus less on public uh, figures and politicians like Obama and Hillary. Um, although you know, I'm not saying that they're blameless because they absolutely you know Hillary especially takes a lot of blame for this. But these agendas pre-exist kind of whoever happens to be in office at any given time. So, you know, if, if you have the deep state or the CIA or any of these agencies who have an agenda, that agenda lasts for a very long, you know, it, it, it doesn't matter who's in office, that whoever's in office, and I, I probably include Trump on this now as well, whoever's in office will end up going along with that agenda because it, it, it's bigger than them. It predates them. And so you have something like Libya where, They've been, you know, they've been planning since the 80s to, to get rid of Gaddafi. How many administrations have come and gone in that time? Maybe two or three. And yeah, three or four. There you go. And then you get to Obama. And, you know, I imagine the conversation is something like, uh, OK, we're going to. OK, this sure, is an opportune moment. We've got the French on board. We've got the yep. Saudis on board. The Qataris yep. are going to support. We've got some special forces available. Let's do it. Right. Something like that happens. And he, he yeah, had absolutely. to have signed off on it, Obama and Hillary. Yeah, but I mean, from reading the results, you know, from what I've seen, it, it seems to me that Obama was less involved than Hillary. And I imagine that Hillary kind of just took charge of that, you know, being being in charge of the State Department, just took, took charge of that. And Obama was like, well, OK, this is what we're doing. Um, uh, just, just to go back on something you said earlier, you said... Um, uh, you know about Gaddafi having not seen this coming and all of that. The interesting thing is, Gaddafi did see it coming for a very long time. He had been extremely paranoid about being overthrown from the outside. Um, he was paranoid about the Saudis. He was paranoid about the Americans. There had been previous assassination attempts. That you know, that all of all of this stuff had gone on. Um, so, you know, a lot of this that that gets said about Libya being a very oppressive state and you know uh, a harsh regime and all that a lot of this was to do with that paranoia about being overthrown from the outside you know he, he almost felt like that they had to be on their guard constantly because of the threat um and so you know I, i'm not i'm you know i'm not excusing kind of dictatorship that, that's that's not what i'm saying but there is there was some justification in being uh, very paranoid very very defensive about threats from the outside. But what happened was, after kind of 2003, 2004, when Gaddafi started to open up more to the West and there was a kind of reconciliation and he got rid of his uh, WMDs and all this kind of stuff, I think that's when he let his guard down. I think that's when he thought, okay, we're, we're kind of friends now. Not friends exactly, but we're kind of on good terms now. We can loosen things up now. You know, we can, you know, uh, I mean, he even, he was even letting people out of jail 
right, uh, right up towards 2011, there were all these people who'd been in jail for a long time. There'd been rebels, there'd been jihadists, people kind of under the sway of extremism and all of that. He'd had them in jail for quite a while because he considered them to be a threat. And, uh, you know, just a few months prior, maybe even a few weeks, I might have that wrong, actually, maybe just a few weeks prior to when the uprising started, he'd actually begun releasing some of these people from, from jail as a gesture of kind of, OK, let, this is a new start. Let's all get along. Let's all kind of, you know, uh, you're forgiven for these past these past associations and past things. There was there was some kind of de-radicalization program that had gone on where they were trying to rehabilitate these people, uh, bring them away from the kind of radical radicalized views and all of that kind of jihadism and stuff and re uh you know send them back into society and all of this uh that i mean that was obviously a mistake with hindsight he, he wasn't to know that at the time because he didn't know what the, the foreign kind of agencies were up to but um it, it he had this naivety that had never been there for like 20 or 30 years when he'd been very paranoid and protective it was only in these last seven or eight years that he started to open up again one of the main reasons he did was because of his his eldest son saif gaddafi was a very kind of uh, moderating modernizing kind of influence and he, he wanted to you know open libya up and, and and go in a new direction and all this kind of, you know he was He'd been wined and dined in Europe. He'd studied at the London School of Economics in the UK. He was friends with Tony Blair. He was, uh, I believe he was even friends with the Rothschilds, believe it or not. Um, well, not friends with the Rothschilds, but he'd, you know, he'd been wined and dined by the Rothschilds and all this kind of stuff. So he was a big influence on, on getting his father and getting the regime to kind of start to go in a different direction. One of the saddest things that I saw during all of this was an interview that, he, that Saif Gaddafi gave to RT during this crisis where you could just see how betrayed and upset he was. And he's basically saying, I don't understand. I thought the Americans and the Europeans were our friends now and we were all getting along. Why is this happening? What's going on? He then, of course, goes on to the, the issue of we're never going to trust them again. We're never going to, you know, th that's it. We're done, you know. Uh, he, he didn't make it, did he? No, he's alive. He's oh, he's alive. alive. Okay. Um, in, One of those codified in thugs fact, was killed, right? Isn't that right? Well, yeah, uh, one of uh, Gaddafi's sons was killed, but the eldest, uh, the one that I'm talking about, Saif, is still alive. In fact, he had been in jail since 2011. He, he'd been held by one of the militias, and in 2015, he'd been sentenced to death to, uh, to be executed. Um, but it never happened. And just around six months ago last year, he was quietly released from detention against the wishes of the Libyan government and with the current Lib Libyan government and all these uh, different factions, the faction that were holding him released him. All of the stories now coming out of Libya are that this Saif Gaddafi is being seen as the only hope to, to restore the country and to bring the country together. I mean, this is a fascinating kind of turn of events where he, he's, I mean, these aren't official statements because I think they're very, very cagey at this point in time about revealing his activities or where he is and all this kind of stuff because there are still uh, american and french forces in libya although that's not being covered very much but they are still there so th there's fears about that but it's yeah it's extremely interesting because uh, in the context as well of what's gone on in aleppo in syria with assad basically seemingly surviving this whole thing now and probably remaining in power it would be very interesting if in libya it ends up being a, a son of Gaddafi that is the one who is seen as the as the hope to reunify the country potentially and get things back on track Can you talk about the russian satellite data um, yeah, th this was so among the various deceptions that were kind of played out in 2011, 
by Western governments and international media was this idea that uh, Gaddafi's air force had been bombing residential areas in Tripoli and, and killing civilians that way. Um, and this was repeated all over the world. I think it started on possibly Al Jazeera, or one of the Arab channels. Then it got picked up by all the American and British and European media. And there was actually no proof of it because and, and, and more than more than there being no proof of it, the, the, the Russians claim to have satellite data that was watching the entire area during that whole time. And they released satellite data that, sh that claimed to have shown that there was no Libyan Air Force in the air at that time. There was no bombing going on. None of it had actually happened. Now, unfortunately, the only source I have for this is RT because no other media um, covered this or acknowledged it or, or anything else. So, you know, I'm citing RT as the source because they're the, they're the only source. Uh, there's, there's, no, there's, there's no way to verify that. But the other, on the other side of the equation, uh, the, the Western media didn't actually provide anything to verify their claim either. So Interesting. it's a question of who you want to believe. But the Russians claim to have satellite data all along. Twitter accounts. Talk about the YouTube strategy. Yeah, I mean, the, the, the YouTube thing kind of pl plays into the same, yeah, the same social media Twitter operation. So basically, you had this whole swathe of a uh, swathe of YouTube videos that came up during the crisis, showing stuff, uh, things that were happening in Libya, showing alleged crimes of the regime, you know, uh, civilians being attacked and mosques being blown up and all this kind of stuff. Um, yeah, and most of it was extremely unconvincing when you really look at it. Um, but it then, it then I then sort of discovered, I discovered it through I think another blogger whose name unfortunately I can't remember. But then I I, I spoke to some people in Libya who uh, via email who who seemed to confirm this, which is that there was no YouTube in Libya at this at this point in time. Um, oh, wow. YouTube was blocked in Libya. So immediately <laughs> you have to ask the question of. Uh, uh, well, it's just how, another, it's sophisticated propaganda campaigns by the people behind the war, just like they did in Iraq or where they were. I think there there was a recent statistic that came out that said $500 million were spent on phony propaganda for the Iraq war, like a huge amount of money. So all these fake videos and stuff like that, it's probably the same thing in Libya. Yeah, well, I mean, this also goes back to what I was saying about the about uh, Qatar and kind of setting up fake locations right. made to resemble the, the locations in Libya. So I assume that a lot of these videos were shot in Qatar uh, on fake sets and what have you. And this is also the same thing, you know, a couple of weeks ago um, around Christmas when all of this was happening in Aleppo. Um, and I'm watching all these news reports on the BBC and on CNN and all this. Stuff. And on the BBC, I was watching that they were talking to people in Aleppo um, who they identified as activists and the white helmets and all, you know, do you know about the white helmets yes, and uh -huh, all this stuff? Uh -huh. So they're talking to these people on the ground and they're filming via Skype. And so they're filming live and there's all these, you know, they're, they're, they're making all these claims about we're, we're under attack right now. They're coming, you know, the army's coming, the Russians are coming. This is our last message. You know, you in the West have abandoned us and uh, we're all about to be killed and all this stuff. And you're watching that thinking, well, hang on a minute. You're telling us that Aleppo is under siege you've been bombed to hell for months and you're being bombed right now by the russian air force there's the the syrian army on the ground attacking you blowing up buildings all of this stuff okay you, you, you apparently have been cut off from food and supply and, and electricity and all of this stuff how do you have internet how are you sending a perfect skype call 
with you know in, in perfect quality live at the scene with no electricity how is that happening what's going on and you've got bbc reporters sitting there I, I don't know if that question even occurs to them or if they're knowingly in on this or what i don't know what's happening but how, how do you not ask that question i guess the kid who was supposedly taken out of the rubble i don't remember did you see that story he's he had like ash on his face that turned out to be yeah, yeah yeah just sorry just on the white helmets so i've um, have you heard of vanessa Bealey? No, please tell me about that. Yeah, so Vanessa Bealey is a British um, peace activist and uh, independent journalist um, who I've had quite a lot of contact with. I've spoken to her a bit on my blog, and uh, she has a blog as well. And uh, she's been out in Aleppo fairly recently and in Syria quite a bit. And she, uh, she's probably the primary source of the of the exposure of the White Helmets for what they, you know, for the kind of fake organisation that they are and all of this. Um, and it's really interesting how how she just she just does not get invited on mainstream media shows. No news no news channels will interview her or ask her about because you'd think you know here's a British woman she's been in Aleppo she's in Aleppo why don't we speak to her find out what's going on but no I mean no one goes, I mean she's been on RT she's been on some alternative media and stuff like that but no one's interested. Interesting. Instead that. Yeah, instead they're speaking to these people who we don't even actually know who they are and, you know, all these dodgy things going on. You've got an actual independent journalist there on the ground who's not being approached. And then you have Western media who don't have anyone on the ground in Aleppo. Literally no one. CNN had no one there. BBC had no one there. But who are reporting on it and, you know, uh, purporting to show us what's going on in this city where they have no presence, where they have no one there. It makes absolutely no sense. Yeah, it makes sense. I heard about the White Helmets from... 21st century wire yeah she she she's a she is a contributor to 21st century wire so it, it might have even been her some of her stuff you were reading i, I imagine I, I might have just yeah. not put the name to the story yeah. so that's probably it well let's let's get back to kind of the the libya conspiracy and talk about rebels mercenaries terrorists people disguised as arabs can you talk about how that kind of military uh, assault took place on libya yeah, right. Well, I mean, so basically, uh, when you ask the question of who was actually on the ground in Libya doing the fighting against the Libyan government, there's a kind of there's a couple of tiers to this. Uh, so, at the first level, you have kind of you know, reb armed rebels who've been armed from the west. Um, this is a mixture of people. You've got some mercenaries there, but basically, it's, it's a mixture of people who are jihadists or a line of Al Qaeda or some of these kinds of groups. Or, or just basically, you know, criminals for hire and all this kind of stuff going on. Uh, a lot of kids got swept up in this and were, give, were basically just given weapons and told to get involved and all this kind of stuff going on. Uh, but then, then you go up from that. You go up one and you've got the foreign, foreign agencies on the ground. So beginning with the French, it seems pretty clear from what I've, I've the information I've seen that there were French agents on the ground from literally day one, literally the very first. Uh, incident that, that there was in February 2011, the very first incident involving armed uh, people attacking military locations in Libya. You had you probably had French agents on the ground. Uh, after that, you then start to get American and British and other uh, and Qatari and other personnel getting involved. A lot of these were uh, disguised as Arabs. I mean, I, I talked about this. The, the interesting thing is when you when you research a lot of this stuff, you don't even have to go to alternative media or or so-called you know conspiracy sites or any of that kind of stuff. You can just go to mainstream media because they leave clues 
scattered all over the place, whether deliberately or otherwise. So, uh, I mean, a lot of this stuff I was getting actually from The Guardian and from, uh, main, you know, Washington Post, mainstream media, uh, revealing that the SAS were in Libya on the ground. Um, but that they, they were there kind of unofficially, you know, at a point when we, we weren't officially involved at all. We hadn't even had a UN resolution or anything, but the, but the SAS were on the ground. Um, and they were apparently going after Gaddafi. This was all in mainstream, you know, journalism. Um, they were there working with the Qataris. So you had lots of Qatari agents on the ground who, because they are Arab and have that natural kind of complexion, they were able to kind of blend in and you know, with the locals and kind of sell themselves as Libyans and all of this, all of this kind of stuff. There was some talk of uh, British operatives, basically, I mean, you know, British operatives basically using Qatari operatives to impersonate Libyans and all of this was going on. Uh, there were um, there were mercenaries from all over the world there. There were people who could come uh, from, the, from the US. There were CIA agents on the ground. There were people, there were jihadists from Afghanistan, which is quite far away from Libya on the ground in Libya who'd been shipped there by the CIA, uh, something somewhere in the area of around 1,500 or something like that of them. There were jihadists who had been involved in Iraq in fighting against US forces in Iraq who were now shipped into Libya to fight against the Libyan state. So there's this whole mishmash of um, just... Uh, whole group just of, the irre- of the irregular, irregular forces, special forces from all different yeah, yeah. governments. What do you think the total amount of irregular troops on the ground was well in, in terms of uh, from from uh, western states probably probably not that many because it wouldn't take that many because you don't need to be there you um you have all these proxy armies there already you have all these rebel groups and what have you so probably not that many but there would have been instructors and uh, you know there would have probably been, been handfuls of people scattered around libya kind of overseeing things and um you know setting up a because I mean, a lot of these people doing the fighting on the ground uh, the local people didn't really have, even have any experience of, of using weapons and all this stuff they, they, a lot of these were just amateurs who who went along with the riot for whatever reason i mean th- whether they were bribed or whether you know there are, there's a lot of evidence to suggest that there were drugs involved as well right. so what what is so, captagon on that subject what's captagon uh, yeah so so I didn't know a lot about Captagon until I started looking into it, and it's a, it's a it's an amphetamine. It's a drug that was that has been quite popular in some of the Arab countries, and so um, the information suggests that a lot of these pills have been discovered um, in Syria, so it, you know, among rebels in Syria doing the fighting. Um, yeah, I've heard that. And, yeah, and so this kind of got me because I, you know, you go back to 2011. I remember there was a speech that Gaddafi made about claiming that you know these rebels were on drugs, and you know, and I never took that seriously at the time because it just sounded like a weird kind of thing to suggest. And I know most of the media mocked it, but then you start looking at the situation in Syria, which is very closely married to the situation in Libya. They're basically one situation, is is how I've always seen it. And and all all of these drugs were being discovered among uh, uh, Syrian rebels and jihadists and all of this. A lot of them were discovered in kind of altered states of consciousness. You know, some of these really extraordinary acts of barbarity that were going on. So you had... um, you must have heard about the the, the guy who, who ripped the heart out of a, a Syrian soldier and ate yeah. it, or, you know, uh-huh. yep. things like that. Do you think he's on, you he start on think, yeah. yeah, you start to think, would anyone in an ordinary state of consciousness even go anywhere near doing something like that? I mean, 
I don't care how angry you are or how much you hate the government. Or really, you're going to rip someone's internal organs out and eat it on camera, knowing that you're being filmed. I mean, it's not unheard of. I mean, you know, uh, Hitler gave his troops uh, methamphetamines. A lot of uh, guys on flight missions, long-term aerial missions, are on amphetamines. So they call them pet pills, which is a nice term. Yeah, right? but yeah, it's not unheard of. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, no, I, I, I have a, I've, I've written about that as well. Yeah, because uh, books have been written on on Hitler and and the SS and and the involvement of amphetamines there as well. So yeah, it's it's not necessarily a new thing, right. but it's again, it's just another level to what we were saying before about how insidious all of this is and, and just how how many levels of this conspiracy there are and how much was thrown into it. It's you just know. different tiers. Um, the strange tears of yeah. the media, the military, the kind of drugs on the ground. There was a racism going on in the whole fight, too, right? Um, wasn't there kind of a, a lot of anger towards Africans and things like that? Do you want to talk about that? Yeah, there, there was... Um, yeah, so what you had in Libya, there had been a lot of migration, a lot of, uh, I guess... Uh, migrant workers from other African countries, from kind of sub-Saharan Africa. You know, they, these are all people from very, very poor countries. So, you know, a, a lot of them would come up to Libya because Libya was doing so well. Libya was so prosperous for an African nation. Um, and Gaddafi, I think, kind of encouraged a lot of this because he wanted the, you know, they wanted the workers for construction projects and for all of this stuff. So I think there was somewhere, certainly over a million black African migrant workers in Libya at that time and I guess there was a, there was a lot of underlying racism towards them from within some parts of the community not all of the community but you know within so, as there is in, in any society I mean America being no exception and you know Britain being no exception you know there's a lot of uh, resentment towards migrants that goes on all the time uh, so I, I guess Libya was the same thing but what happened was when the uprising started and when uh, when the government basically started getting pushed out of certain areas, towns and cities, what happens is order is lost, and then suddenly there are no rules. So the pe- you know the people you hate for racial reasons or for you know or you resent them because they're taking your job, any of these things. Right. Suddenly, you can just do what you want because there's no authority there anymore. It's anarchy. So you want to start lynching these people. Uh, accusing them of this that and the other and and you know and this is pretty much what started to happen very quickly you had a lot of these black african migrants were accused of being regime supporters and um being in league with the regime and they would be just strung up in the street you know hung from bridges uh summarily executed and all of this stuff was going on um again you know for the most part the major western media didn't report on this didn't really say anything about it um, the, the, the accusation then came from Western media that uh, there were a lot of these African mercenaries, there were these black Africans in Libya were working for Gaddafi and were mercenaries. There was very little proof of this. And if you really look into it, even you know this many years after the fact, there, there remains very little proof that that was actually going on. The mercenaries were actually on the other side, where the people being brought in by the CIA and, and by, you know, from Afghanistan and from elsewhere, the jihadists, those were the mercenaries 
On the Gaddafi side, there really is very little evidence to suggest that there were any of these African mercenaries at all. But it became a very useful excuse to justify why these killings were going on of black Africans uh, because, you know, they were working for right. they were working for the regime. Apparently, but there and, was and, a substantial uh, body count, wasn't there? There were huge like uh, pits dug to bury the bodies. Isn't that correct? Yeah, I mean, this has all been, I mean, I, some of this stuff I can't really say for certain whether it's true or not, because I don't know, but there were certainly very strong accusations. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, even from, from groups like like uh, Amnesty International and Human Rights Watch, who, you know, a lot of people consider to be pro, you know, Western agenda entities, but, you know, a lot of the time they're not. A lot of the time they do just report what's going on. Um yeah, even from them. And the interesting thing is you could really argue that Western media was kind of complicit in those killings in as much as they propagandized against these Africans by calling them mercenaries or by, by, by placing that suggestion out there. So that you, you could almost like insulate those those crimes and those murders because, uh, well, maybe they're just killing the mercenaries. But, but once you establish that there were no mercenaries on that side, that these are just migrant workers, <laughs> then you have to ask, well, what was the media doing? Why, why did the media like put this claim out there and then and then step away from it and say oh well we may have been mistaken but all these people have just been killed you know there's another i mean interestingly i suppose we could, there's another area uh, there's another dimension to all of this which is that if you look at the migrant crisis that we have now and the refugee crisis uh, in europe you know probably 50 percent or more of it which is coming via libya you know via the mediterranean libya used to be the, for, for like a huge amount of these people, Libya used to actually be the end destination, the end point. So they would be migrating up from some, some poorer sub-Saharan African countries to Libya to get work in Libya, you know, and, and to, you know, to be construction workers or, or whatever that, you know, whatever they were doing. And that was it. They, they weren't coming. They were, I mean, some would try and get to Europe, but certainly not in huge numbers because Libya was the end point. So you're not going, you, you get to Libya, that's it. You're not then crossing the sea to, to Europe or to Italy or, or whatever. Now, of course, that's all different. Now they can't stay in Libya because there's, there's nothing in Libya. So uh, so now they're, it, it's extended to the European coast and then into Europe. That's our fault. We did that. I mean, we basically did that. This is kind of why uh, some of the kind of extreme right-wing kind of nationalism that we get at the moment with this demonization of refugees and stuff annoys me so much because you know this this isn't happening in a vacuum this is going back to our own you know our own governments did this i mean well we're coming to the end so let's talk about godify's last stand in the city of Sirte and how he was murdered the way i mean everyone's seen this footage presumably from the time of him being murdered in Sirte you know, he's, he's surrounded by the mob and, and they, they basically put him to death. And that was always presented as, you know, they, they, they happened to capture him. They found out where he was and, uh, and they executed him. The reality, of course, is that, they, you know, once you accept or once you discover that there were Western agencies on the ground, including the SAS and including American agencies and French and all of this, who are most likely embedded with the rebels, uh, that whole that whole uh, story changes because this becomes more of an assassination than more of a, a Western-backed assassination than just something that was happening on the ground among all these crazed people. Uh, he, his convoy, Gaddafi's convoy, had been bombed by NATO bombers, uh, forcing him to flee and eventually end up in this kind of sewage uh, piping or wherever he was. Um, and then, uh, what, more than likely, what happened was. Uh, these rebels were tipped off to exactly where he was from Western uh, sources. Mm-hmm. 
saying, here he is, go get him, do what you want. The, the, the subsequent uh, claims have come out that the French intelligence might have been in the crowd and actually been the ones to fire the shot that killed him. I don't know if that's true, but there, there are very strong claims being made. There are subsequent claims being made about Hillary Clinton's involvement, about whether she gave the go-ahead for the execution. Um, the, 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 the claim is that she was in uh, Libya at that time, in I believe in Benghazi, meeting with representatives and leaders of what, what was being called the National Transitional Council. The, um, you, 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 have have that, yeah, you, have that, you have that picture in your book of her in Benghazi, is that right around 2011? Well, you know, so she's meeting with a de facto kind of new leaders of Libya, and there is a claim from a couple of sources, and I, again, I can't verify, I don't know if this is true or not, but there is a claim that they had already come to a deal with Gaddafi at this point about him leaving the country, um, and that when he was traveling in his convoy, he was actually leaving. I mean, that was part of the whole plan, right. but that she, the, but that she, uh, Gave the order for the NATO bombers to attack the convoy and for the for the rebels to. Well, I mean, like one of the most disturbing things about all of that is that he appeared to have been travelling under a white flag convoy. I mean, they had white flags literally attached to their vehicles, um, which which suggests uh, that he was leaving. I mean, you know. That's what I'd heard as well, so I, I definitely... And, and, and just, yeah, yeah. And just the idea of a, a, attacking a white flag convoy, just just on its own, is just extraordinary, really. I mean... Yeah, it's incredible. It's really very ruthless, you know, very ruthless. So so what what's happened in Libya since the death of Qatifi in 2011? How has the com- country reacted to his demise and the regime's demise? Well, Libya now basically is a failed state. It's in... Yeah, it's pretty much in complete chaos. Um, so the National Transitional Council, which was the kind, of the, which was the authority that was put in place to replace Gaddafi, lasted for maybe about a year, maybe a year and a half. That's long gone. Um, so then, in 2014, I believe Libya erupted into a second civil war, where different factions who had, you know, previously overthrown Gaddafi were now fighting each other <laughs> for control of the country. Who, That's who, kind won? Of, who won? Well, it's kind of unresolved. Like, uh, it's difficult. It's, uh, some people, you know, some regard it as still going on. Others say it's just kind of difficult to even describe what the situation is because there are so many different factions now in different parts of the country. There are there are three uh, government. I, I say governments in, a, in an inverted commas. I mean, there, there are three entities that claim to be the government in Libya in different parts of the country. None of them are really able to govern effectively. There's a UN-backed government um, which has been rejected by pretty much everyone in Libya at this point and is therefore completely ineffective. Um, and there's no solution in sight. I mean, the, the, because different parts of the country are under, under control of different factions, including extremist factions, and you have ISIS there. Uh, ISIS took over CERT completely. Um, then the Americans, I think, have, have gone in recently, in, in recent months, to drive ISIS out, which supposedly has been happening. But that 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 still doesn't solve the situation. I mean, it's just complete chaos. There's, well, there's... I think maybe that is the re- resolution that the Western powers want: is to totally balkanize some of these states and put them into tiny little principalities that fight among each other. So, unfortunately, I think that that was part of that seven-nation agenda was to you know, destroy the, the bigger nation states and make them fight amongst each other, devolve their power. 
Yeah, I, I think you're almost certainly uh, correct. Um, and I, I suppose it's scary to consider, really, that that's, that that's not really over yet because the seven nations on that list haven't all been dealt with yet in, in that way. So well I think I think probably Iran is the next big issue. Yeah, I, I, I would imagine. Right. I think you're right. So in, in kind of kind of bringing this full circle, bringing it to an end, do you want to talk about how the events in Libya uh, are can be projected to the modern age, to Syria, or what you predict uh, for the future of that, that region? Well, uh, in terms of predicting the future of that region, I, um, I won't even attempt it because, <laughs> I mean, it's, who can know? It's, there's just so much going on. And it's complete chaos. There's no way of predicting what's going to happen. Um in terms of Syria, I mean, the Libya and Syria things were were basically the same event, in my view. Uh, the same event using the same tactics, involving the same players, the same international uh, orchestrators and the same the pretty much identical situations on the ground. It's just that the Syria thing got played out for a lot longer, um, partly because Syria is a much bigger country and partly because the Russians were involved in Syria. So, you know... Uh, Assad kind of had had support from the outside from Russia and Iran, whereas Gaddafi was kind of on his own and didn't really have anyone backing him. With Syria, um, you know, I mean, the, the war in Syria Syria isn't over. I expect it to be over within maybe. I mean, maybe within a year. Like, I really don't see it going on for longer than a year in terms of having any lingering question about who is going to be the government in Syria or anything like that. I think it will be Assad and he will stay. And you know that's probably probably for the best in Libya. The situation is um, much more difficult to uh, talk about because uh, you have, like as I was saying, you have a there is still the ghost of Gaddafi in Libya. His children are still supposedly, according to a lot of sources, uh, which again is difficult to verify, but are still trying to to organise a resistance against all of these foreign-backed terrorist entities and and what have you. And so it will be interesting to see where that goes whether they will try whether they will try to do this very covertly or whether they will come out into the open and kind of declare themselves there was a statement put out uh, maybe two weeks ago very early in the year but uh, which was basically called the i forgot what it was i think it was called the founding declaration for the liberation of libya or something like that and it's on my blog if anyone anyone wants to see it and can it was you basically re- can you restate your blog again oh it's the burning blogger of bedlam at wordpress.com it's an excellent blog, so go check out all of his posts. Um, and uh, anything else that we missed that you would like to talk about? You know, a, a lot of it is basically in the book, and the book is a free download. So if you want to, if you go along to the blog and, and look for that, most of it is there. Uh, well, I mean, I, I write about lots of lots of different stuff. So um, I've been doing a lot on Trump uh, recently in the election. Uh, you know, bits and pieces on, on Brexit and all of that. Um, just, I'm, I'm quite interested to ask you. Because of where you are, what 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 you make of this election that's just happened in America and the situation right now? I thought Hillary was going to win. I was ninety five percent sure she was going to take it, so I was surprised when Trump uh, Trump won. So I think that he is uh, he's put around him some very intense military people, and he's yeah. already started starting to take action. I think that the the decision to come out of the TPP was good. That was an excellent decision for the country, so I, I like that. Yeah. Um, but you know, you got to see what somebody does. I, I really don't know if he will enact or do what he said he would do when he was campaigning. But 
I think that, you know, looking example of Hillary in Libya, if she was became president, I think that it would be bad for the U.S. I think that she's a warmonger and she said some very inflammatory things about Iran and Russia that uh, to me are dangerous. So uh, in, in a certain sense, I like the people around Trump. Uh, with See, this is where I mean, I, I think he was the, he was a better choice than Hillary. But I agree. I have serious reservations, though, about Trump and some of the people around him. Um, maybe not so much Trump himself, but some of the people around him. And there are, there are. I mean, I've, I've posted about this on the blog if anyone wants to check it out. But there are a lot of, there are a number of neocons that have seemed seem to have been brought into the fold around Trump, which I find a bit uh, which ones troubling. Well, see, I have a list of them on the blog. I um, and I can't remember exactly which ones. There was James Woolsey, and um, see, I wasn't aware know, that he was back. The central figures for me are, what is it, Kelly, uh, Mattis. Those guys are all military guys. I like Pompeo as the head of the CIA. I think it was mm. very wise of Trump and Pence to go to the CIA and talk to them the first day. I think that that was an intelligent move by either them or their advisors because they have a lot of uh, skills in doing different different things. So for me, that yeah. was wise, but uh, yeah. Yeah, I, I have to say I I like some of the things Trump has done with reservations, you know, so we'll see what happens in the future. I don't know. Ladies and gentlemen, that was S. Awan, whose blog is the Burning Blogger of Bedlam, where you can find the book, The Libya Conspiracy. So please go to that blog, take a look around. He has a, a wide variety of other different posts about a variety of subjects, and uh, they're definitely worth reading particularly the book, The Libya Conspiracy. Thank you. Have a good night.